Thank you for joining Crossroads Community Church today. We're so excited about what God's doing in the lives of the people of our church and the lives of those who are listening online. If you have any questions or want more information about our church, visit our website at www.crossroadscco.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Now let's jump into the Word with this week's message. Well, we all need mercy. It's about a month ago I was getting ready for work, and this happens fairly often. It was another one of those mornings, and I call upon Brenda, my wife's assistant. I said, honey, I I need your help. I said, "I, I need to take off, but I've got an important phone call, and I cannot find my phone. And so we're frantically looking all over the house for my phone. She's looking in the strategic nukes and crannies where I might typically leave it but forget to look for it, you know, kind of that stuff our wives help us find when it's really in plain sight. And, uh, and, and so we're looking. I said, Brenda, I've got about three minutes. We've really got to find this. I've got this important phone call that I need to make. And as we're looking, I kind of feel along my hip pocket. And there's my phone right on my hip pocket. And I said, Brenda, uh, I found the phone. I found it. She says, where did you find it? And at that point, I pray, oh, Lord, help her to have mercy today. We all need mercy. Imagine if you wake up at 2 a.m. in the morning. It's on Wednesday, Thursday. You're thinking about last week's message the fourth rung and the beatitudes of a blessed life to hunger and thirst for righteousness. You're thinking about that. I know you think about my messages throughout the week. I know you're you're a faithful church. You wake up at 2 a.m. and say, Lord, what do I need to do to hunger and thirst for righteousness? What is it I need to do? And you begin to make a list within your mind or maybe on paper. You begin to think, well, is it measured by how many devotions or Bible studies I have throughout the week? Is it measured by how well I'm controlling my anger? Is it measured by well I'm keeping my thoughts in check and taking them captive and not letting them run to places where they shouldn't be? Perhaps that's the case. But as we continue to move up the rungs of the ladder of the eight blessings of God's ideal life, God's vision life for you, the next rung is going to be mercy. If you put on your list, Lord, help me to be a person who exercises mercy to others, then you have answered rightly. You have picked a winning quality that God wants to develop and grow within our lives because mercy is the number one gift that he doles out and dispenses on the planet Earth. And so toward that end, I'd like us to read this fifth quality together. And we, we could have Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, by way of the screen, when we look at the fifth blessing of God's ideal life for us. And so let's read that together. Together, please. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Mercy is a quality that we desperately need, but it is a quality that our community, those that we work with, those that we live with, 
those that we live next to, those that we rub elbows with, it is the number one quality that they need to receive from our lives. And let me tell you what mercy is. Mercy is when we withhold judgment that people do deserve so they can receive the grace of God that they do not deserve. Mercy is when we withhold the judgment that people do deserve in order that we can open up an environment and the doors for them to receive the grace of God that they don't deserve. And mercy is one of the most important and essential qualities of living a blessed life and opening up healthy relationships, healthy community, in a more dynamic worship with our Lord. It is through mercy that we have the glue that holds our marriages together. It is through mercy that we have the reasonable expectations and we pace our relationships through our sins and our faults with our friends and the body of Christ so that we can grow up rather than sinking down. And it is through mercy that when we go into the harvest field and we pass on an obedient relationship with Christ to our community, that when people see mercy in our actions and in our attitude, they are most seeing the face of Jesus Christ. So what I want to do is talk about what this mercy is and how it is that we practice it. So if you have your Bibles, Matthew 5, verse 7. If you don't have your Bibles, we'll have scriptures by way of the screen. So let's talk about mercy. What is it? When you look at Jesus, you go through the Gospels, you get to know him. His face was the face of mercy. As he interacted with people, as he was rubbing elbows, as he was loving the outcasts, the sick, the broken, the sinners, those that others had pushed out, Jesus brought in because of his mercy. And one of my favorite stories is from Luke chapter 7. It's the story of the sinful woman. Jesus is invited by this guy, he's a Pharisee, he's a prominent religious leader, a man of high respect, of high importance within his community. And he invites Jesus to come in and have a dinner. Jesus is this up-and-coming rabbi, and so he wants to kind of fill out who this guy really is. And he's protecting his town, he's protecting his territory, he's protecting his turf. He's wanting to measure the Savior to make sure that he doesn't interfere with the religious order and the system that this guy Simon and others like him are protecting. And it's as if Jesus is reclining at the table and they're going to have dinner together. All of a sudden something very strange happens, which was not uncommon. When you walked, you hung out with Jesus. This woman comes in. The Bible says that she was a sinful woman. She had a bad reputation. It doesn't say exactly how, but the implication seems to be is that she was a prostitute. She sold herself for sex. And it says that she went into this house of this dignified meeting, and she went right at Jesus' feet, and she began weeping upon his feet with her tears, and she began wiping his feet with her hair, and worshiping and loving Jesus. 
And the crowd's looking at that and thinking, what in the world's going on? And Simon, the religious leader, the outstanding man of the community, thinks this to himself and Jesus knows his thoughts through a word of knowledge. Simon thinks if this Jesus were really a prophet, he would know who is touching him. He would know who this woman is and he would have her escorted right out of my home. Jesus knew his thoughts. He said, Simon, can I tell you a story? And Simon says, well, go ahead. He says, there was a money lender and two men owed him. One man owed him a 50 days worth of wages and another man owed him a 100 days worth of wages. Neither of them could pay the money lender back and so the money lender forgave both of them. Who do you suppose loved the money lender the more? Simon says, I suppose the one who was forgiven more. And Jesus says, I came into your house and you didn't wash my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears. I came into your house and you really didn't even greet me or show much hospitality, but this woman has loved me and worshiped me. I came into your house and you treated me as just anybody, but this woman came in and she has worshiped me. And then Jesus says, the person who has been forgiven much loves much. And he looked at this woman and he says, go, your sins are forgiven. That's a picture of mercy. You see, mercy is when Jesus withheld judgment that she deserved. She was a sinner. She was a prostitute. She had lived a life of evil. She had a bad reputation. And Jesus had every right to condemn her, but he did not. And he showed her mercy and withheld a judgment that she did deserve so that he could give her a grace she did not deserve. She, he said to her, go, your sins are forgiven. You are restored in the relationship with God. And folks, when it comes to Jesus, he is much more into a mercy for the messy than he is into a religion for the righteous. In fact, I don't think he's into a religion for the righteous at all. I'll take that back. Jesus withheld judgment that she did deserve to give her a grace that she did not deserve. Now, let me give you three critical definitions. And if you're in no writing mood, you can put these down because it's vital to understand the nature of mercy in light of three terms, justice, mercy, and grace. And we'll have those by way of the screen. First of all, let's define justice. Justice is when you get what you deserve. Justice is when you get what you deserve. With mercy, you don't get what you deserve. And with grace, you get what you don't deserve. How many are you confused right now? We're going to kind of break this down. Let's think about these definitions and let me kind of put this in a way that I think we all can understand. Imagine you're driving down the road and then all of a sudden this car comes up behind you and it's got this blue flashing light. And it comes up beside you so close to you in such a way that you know you need to pull over. 
And when you start to pull over, you see that blue flashing light. What's the first thing you do? What's the first thing you look at? You look at your speedometer. That's right. And you see, oh, you weren't thinking, and you're going 15 miles an hour over the speed limit. That police officer can do some different things. He can go up to you, and you roll down your window, and he can give you a ticket. You violated the law. You went 15 miles an hour over the speed limit. You get the ticket. You need to pay the fine. You have no reason to complain, at least not to the officer's face. You broke the law, so you get justice. And that's justice. We get what we deserve. But let's say the officer had another reaction. He comes up, you roll down the window, and he gives you a warning. Fortunately, this was the last thing I received the last time I was pulled over. And he says to you, all right, here's a warning. Don't do it again. I'm not going to give you a ticket. And he gives you mercy at that point because you did not receive what you really deserved. And you look at the officer and you thank him and you tell him he is the most wonderful person in the world. But there's another reaction he could have, and I don't think anybody's ever experienced this. It would be a reaction of grace. The officer comes up, you roll down your window, he gives you the warning, he says, don't do it again, but then he hands you a gift card. And it's a gift card for Tim Hortons so that you can drink coffee and eat donuts with other police officers when they are sitting there. And that's when you are getting what you don't deserve. That is grace. And so mercy is when God withholds the judgment we do deserve so that it opens up grace to get what we don't deserve. Isn't that cool? Mercy opens up the way to grace. When the prodigal son returned to the father, it was mercy that allowed the father to receive his son back. But it was his grace that made the father throw a feast. When the good Samaritan had bandaged up the guy's wounds, that was mercy. But when he drove him to the hotel and gave the guy a credit card and says, take care of whatever his needs are, that was grace. When Jesus was on the cross and the thief who was there beside him was talking to Jesus. It was mercy that allowed Jesus to have his heart open to this man who was a thief and probably a murderer. But it was grace that escorted this man into heaven. When Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Mercy is when we withhold judgment that people do deserve in order they can experience the grace of God that brings a transformation that they don't deserve. Now let's look in the mirror. What about yourself? When we talk about mercy, it's wonderful to sing about, isn't it? I'm so glad to receive it, aren't you? But giving it to others, that's a whole other ballgame, isn't it? Think about people within your life. Think about some people that lately have really bugged you. Think about some people that have really ticked you off. Maybe it's somebody you've trusted. 
And then you found out they've been speaking to you behind your back. How do you give them mercy? Maybe it's somebody that you've loved and you've served and you've sacrificed for and you've been over backwards for them. And then when you saw them the next time face to face, they didn't even hardly pay attention to you. They ignored you. Far from saying thank you, they really gave you the cold shoulder. How do you exercise mercy there? Maybe it's with somebody who has been inconsistent in their promises. Maybe it is somebody who has been inconsiderate. Maybe it is somebody who has been religious and judgmental and it's driving you nuts. How do you exercise mercy in those situations? I know one thing that you do in those situations is you hold back expressing your anger. You hold back escalating a conflict. You hold back criticizing them to others and bringing them down. You don't allow offenses to continue to build up. And you seek to do whatever you can to restore, to heal whatever's fracturing in the relationship. But you also have motivation for mercy because it leads us to the second clause within the blessing. And notice this, you exercise mercy to others because you desperately need it. Look again at Matthew 5, 7, if we could put it by way of the screen. Jesus says, here's the motivation. We have Matthew chapter 5, verse 7 up on the screen. Okay, it's a short verse. We'll just uh, go ahead and repeat it. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive what? Mercy. Okay. You receive, you give mercy in order that you receive it. And as I was studying this, I read a pastor who said that when you meet any person who has bugged you, has hurt you, has offended you, you give them mercy because your need is the same as their need. And your danger is the same as their danger. It was about four years ago, working on a hospice team. We were assigned to a patient, a person who was in his late 50s. He probably had six months or maybe a little more left to live. And as I walked into this room, this guy was one of the most violent people I'd ever met. In his past and in his history, he was addicted to drugs. He was addicted to heroin. He was a pusher. He was a hustler. With everybody within his life, those who were close to him, those who were his family members, knew him to be an abusive person. He was a hustler. He was a pusher. He was a violent man. He had put many men into the hospital. He had been in prison himself. And as I walked into his room and knowing my background and he knowing who, at least my background and who I am, this guy didn't want me there because he fully anticipated that I was going to pelt him with Bible verses. I was going to talk about how bad he was and the judgment that God had in his life. But as I sat down there, I just relaxed and I don't know how it exactly happened, but I got to hear his story. I got to know him, and he got to hear my story. He got to know me. And we found out that we have a few things of common interest. And, and we developed this friendship together. 
And week after week after week as I visited him, as the walls came down, I was able to insert my faith in Jesus Christ and tell about the story of Jesus. And as I was with his men, I found a friendship developing. And as I was with him, it was amazing that as the walls came down, I realized that I, I couldn't bring judgment upon him because his need is the same as my need. His danger is the same as my danger. And if I would not give this man mercy, then I could not receive mercy myself. Because here's the deal. I can honestly say I've not been addicted to drugs or to heroin, but I've been addicted to ambition. I've been addicted to religious pride. And God has had to have mercy upon me and has had to help wean and break me off of, of those addictions, which are dangerous too. I can honestly say I've not been a, a violent man. Yeah, I got in fights in, in, in middle school and high school and whatever, but, but since then I've not been a violent man, but I've hated people, even as a pastor. And Jesus says that if you hate a person within your heart, you, it's the same as committing violence towards them. I had wished wrong of other people. And the deal was, folks, is that his need was the same as my need. His danger is the same as my danger. And if I would call his debt and say, you need to pay it, I'm bringing judgment, I can't hang out with you, then I'd have to call my own debt. And God would have to bring judgment upon me. And God would have to condemn me. But he didn't do that. And folks, we give mercy to others because we need it ourselves. And so we withhold judgment on other people that they do deserve so that they can experience the grace of God that they don't deserve. I want to tell you a little bit more about that story as we come to the end of the message. But let me bring this into a landing. Let's put some shoe leather on this. And let me talk about a couple of ways that you and I can exercise mercy in our daily lives. So if you're in a note-writing mood, let me give you the first thing, and it's this. Here's a way to make it very practical. Practice mercy by having reasonable expectations. Practice mercy by having reasonable expectations. Look by way of the screen, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. <clears throat> Paul writes... He says, always be humble and gentle, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. How many of you see that clause? Making allowance for each other's faults. That is mercy. And that is mercy which is practiced through reasonable expectations that we have on others. And I want to say this morning, let's talk about this in relation to marriage. If you have a strong, if you have a thriving, if you have a growing marriage, guess what? You have a PhD in Ephesians 4.2. If your marriage is doing well, it is because you have learned to make allowance for each other's faults and you have learned to practice mercy in your relationships. And let me talk to the guys a little bit. Guys, 
when you married your wife, you need to realize you married a sinner. When you married your wife, you married a sinner. Now, gals, I want to talk to you a little bit. When you married your husband, you married an even bigger sinner, all right? (laughs) Somebody even bigger. And here's the problem, and here's the challenge with marriage. You get two perfect and perfect sinful people together How in the world do you make a marriage grow and be strong and be unified with people who have this gravitational pull towards self-centeredness and imperfection? And the reason you do that is because you exercise mercy and you make allowance for each other's imperfections. You set reasonable expectations. You pace the relationship. So what that means is that when your spouse squeezes the toothpaste from the middle of the tube rather than the end of it, you don't go ballistic. When the toilet paper is put on backwards rather than in the forward, you don't make it a point of accusation and argument. When you're doing the dishes and they're just about done and your spouse comes to you with that final plate or bowl or cup and puts it into the water, at that point in your frustration, you don't splash water at them, okay? You learn to exercise mercy and you make allowance for each other's faults. Marriage relationships die Not typically, though sometimes it does happen, but not typically because one catastrophic big event that explodes or destroys the relationship. It happens because of continual small digs and cuts and jabs and discontents that go over time and build and build and build and build and eventually suffocate the relationship as anger and bitterness and resentment grow and the couple never makes allowances to give mercy for each other's faults. There was a woman, she said this, I bought my husband a get better soon card. And the lady said to her, well, is he sick? No, he's not sick, but I believe he can do better and can do it soon. And that's the way our attitude is, the expectations that we place. And I have seen so many relationships begin to mature and grow when they lay aside some of the expectations and they accept their spouse for who they are. They accept them faults and all. And the point is this, folks, When God accepted you, when he accepted me, did he accept you on the condition that you would change? Did God accept you because he says, get it together, and then I will extend to you mercy, and then I will extend to you acceptance? No, he accepted us, and out of his mercy, when we realized that he accepted us, we began to change. And in so many of our relationships, if we would look at the other person and say, okay, you are who you are. And in mercy, I'm going to accept you. And when we do that, then guess what happens? We open up an environment for the grace of God to change our spouse. And when we give a mercy that people do, when we withhold judgment that people do deserve, it opens up an environment for grace that people do not deserve.
Number two, practice mercy by overlooking offenses. Practice mercy by overlooking offenses. Look by way of the screen. Proverbs 19, verse 11. Solomon writes, he says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is to his glory to overlook an offense. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. So what does that mean? When we look at the faults, the sins, the foibles of others, do we just bury our head into the sand and pretend they don't exist? No. The Scripture is not telling us to excuse or to condone our faults or sins or or our irresponsibilities, but rather what it's saying is that we do not determine the value and worth of another person by how well they fit within our plans and our expectations. We determine the value and worth of another person by the journey of grace that God has us all mutually upon. And we make allowances because we all need grace, we all have faults, and therefore we give room and space for others to grow as they're in the journey of learning to follow Jesus. Imagine you're walking along, and this is highly unlikely or maybe impossible, but think about this for the sake of analogy. And you come across a painting of Rembrandt. A painting of Rembrandt today sells anywhere from $30 million to $300 million. And as you see this on the ground, it's covered in mud, in dirt. But you realize it is a painting of Rembrandt. And you realize that you have a masterpiece, but the masterpiece has been muddied. So what do you do? Do you throw it away? Do you cast it off because it's got mud on it? No. You look at the masterpiece that is within that painting. And that's what you focus on. You say, we have something of great value, something of great worth here. And so you find a person who knows how to remove the mud in order that you can preserve the masterpiece. And what the Scripture tells us is that when people have faults, when people have sins, when people have those things that drive us crazy, we view the masterpiece and not the mud. And we have a process as a church, as friends, as a community, that as people offend us, as people do not do what they should, or they do what they shouldn't, we have a process of exercising mercy because we are all in the journey of mercy and grace together. We focus on the masterpiece and not the mud. And that means that within our own lives, we learn to stay in our own lane. We learn to walk in the ways that God has called us to walk. And we focus on our obedience to Him and not the disobedience of other people. So this morning, maybe you're one of those people who are thinking, man, I wish so-and-so were here to hear this message. They really need to hear this right now. Or man, I hope they were in first service. I mean, they really need to hear what Pastor Anthony is saying. Well, all the time, you've not been asking the question, Lord, what would you speak to me? Because you are focused on the disobedience of someone else rather than walking in your own lane and responding to the mercy opening up to the grace that God wants to give to you. 
Here's another way that we practice mercy. And it means that rumors stop with us. We practice mercy when we say rumors stop with me. It is a bad thing, obviously. When somebody makes something up or exaggerates something about the life of another person and shares it with other people. That's a bad thing. But you know what's just as bad? Is when you hear a rumor about something that's made up or an exaggerated claim or whatever, and you believe it, and then you share it with other people. You are just as guilty as the person who originated the lie or the mistruth. And a person of mercy says, you know what? I want to protect the dignity I want to protect the worth. I want to protect the value of other people. And so I want to begin to pray. I want to begin to squelch. I want to begin to to, to protect this person rather than continuing to ruin a particular image. Now, folks, sometimes when people are in sin, there are patterns in their lives that are destructive to them and destructive to others. We do need to confront And we do need to deal with that. But look by way of the screens is how Paul tells us to deal with it when somebody's caught in sin or there's a problem in their life. Paul writes this, Galatians 6.1. He says, Brothers and sisters, if somebody is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. In other words, you exercise mercy to that person because you need the same mercy also. And when we're having those difficult conversations with people and we have to confront something, folks, how we do this and to do it gently is that we confront the guilt of the sin without bringing shame. We confront the guilt of what is wrong without bringing shame. And the difference is, is guilt says I've done something wrong. Shame says I am something wrong. And when people fall forward on their face, we are there to pick them up and say, you're still moving forward in the grace and mercy of God. And we restore them gently. Our goal and our plan is to restore them just in the way that God has restored us. Well, let me bring this around. That one person I talked about who was on our hospice services, as I got to know him, and I was able to share about Jesus, and on one particular moment, I was able to share the gospel, that we have a God who went to the cross, he died for our sins, and he gives an open invitation to anyone who would come to him and just simply ask for forgiveness And he will offer mercy and he will bring about grace that brings a transforming life. And I wish I could stand here and say this morning that that gentleman responded to me and says, yeah, Anthony, I want that. And I'm willing to receive that. He looked at me, he says, that's wonderful news and I'm glad to know that. But he says, I'm not worthy to receive it. I cannot bow my knee before the Savior. And I hope he did before he took his final breath and went into eternity. But it was interesting, it would probably be six months later or so after this gentleman had passed, I was with my supervisor and I was getting my annual job performance and job review. And 
that's where they tell me, you know, things I can prove on and things that I did well. And my supervisor says, Anthony, the thing that stood out the most about your performance this last year was how you dealt with that one patient who had been a drug pusher, a drug addict who was on our services. And I had never thought about this, but he says, he says, when everybody, all the disciplines, the nurses, the medical professionals, the therapists, the seniors, everybody that dealt with him, they were competent, they provided good care, but when they came to the office, they talked about what a despicable and horrible man he was. But he says, when you came into the office, you didn't speak that way. In fact, you spoke about him in a very positive light. And he said that when you did that, that showed us that there is something about your faith that makes it very distinctive and reflects whatever you believe about God and Jesus Christ. And folks, when we exercise mercy, that is how we show the face of Jesus Christ to the world. Well, I want to invite the prayer team to come forward and the worship team to come up. And I want to ask you to stand as we look at a final scripture. Romans chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. And as I read this scripture, I would like us together to read verse 24 together. Romans chapter 3. Paul writes this. He says, This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And together, verse 24. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus.